Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. I don't, we would be lost without it. That's where we would be. We would be lost without your word. But Lord, you not only gave us your word, you gave us the word incarnate in your son to, to demonstrate what it is to live and walk in your ways, to show us how to live. And not only that, but to pay our sin debt. We're so grateful, Lord. And now as we open your word, we pray, Lord, that we would learn from this passage, that you would help us to, to um, apply this when the time comes, even though it may be difficult. So, Lord, uh, be with us now, and, and may your Holy Spirit just help us to understand the application in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're a guest with us, we just work our way through the books of the Bible, and we are now in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And if there's children, they can be dismissed. Your teacher will meet you in the back. And speaking of that, my, my wife's usually participating in that, but she is sick this morning, so I appreciate prayers for her. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So uh, the letter to the Corinthians is, is kind of unique in, in Paul's letters. It probably talks more about how the church is to function and, and the nitty-gritty of, of church life than any of his other letters. Um, it has some wonderful doctrine, uh, our, our future resurrection and so forth towards the end of the book, but most of the letter is dealing with these problems that the church in Corinth had. And this matter of church discipline is a difficult subject. You know, if there's a lot of churches that don't have small groups at, that study the scripture together and really get to know one another and really be involved in each other's lives. And a lot of churches, the leaders avoid dealing with sinful behavior unless it happens to be in the leadership. And in many cases, a church's goal is just to increase the attendance, and they're not really worried about transformed lives. But in most churches, most smaller churches, the whole goal is to see people grow in Christ and become more mature in Christ and be able to, so that they can disciple others. You know, that's our great commission is to teach others who can teach others. We're to teach others so that they can not only grow, but so that they can then reproduce other disciples. 
Under what circumstances are elders expected to point out sinful behavior in the church? Are the elders supposed to be behavior police, checking on, exposing sin in every member? Well, Paul lays out what kind of cases we are supposed to address that need to be addressed. The New Testament gives us several cases in which public exposure and punishment are necessary. And we're beginning a section of this letter that deals with issues that are to be publicly addressed. The first we've been studying for over the past month about factions in the church, uh, the church forming these little groups that pit themselves against one another. They were formed around preferred leaders, and, and the, that was destroying the unity with the church in Corinth. And this letter, of course, would have been read aloud to the whole congregation. Paul made some very firm demands. Don't boast in man. Boast only in the Lord. Trying to, to, to stop this behavior that he heard was going on. And he pointed out how worldly and immature their divisive behavior was. The second issue that required public church discipline was a sin that became known to the whole congregation that was so egregious that even unbelievers would have been shocked by it. And we'll get into that next week in chapter 5. A third issue that requires public discipline is false teaching. If someone is spreading an unbiblical teaching that is leading people away from the truth, it needs to be addressed. In every case, the goal is reconciliation and restoration. It's not, uh, we found this, this behavior, so get out of here, or you're teaching this wrong thing. We don't want you here. It's we want to restore and uh, um, reconcile. Over the years, Wayside has had a number of these cases, and we tried, if we can, to address the issue privately, if the whole body is not aware of it, um, without calling out the individual, unless the behavior is continues and is, uh, is defiant. In most cases, we speak with the, the individual in private, and if they're repentant, all is well. We're, we're glad, and they're welcomed back into fellowship, and, and sometimes if they're in a position of leadership, they might be restored to that position. But if the behavior continues, or if they justify their sin, that's another matter. Even then, if the congregation is for the most part unaware, we try to deal with it privately. The goal of the elders is your spiritual growth. That's what we want to see. That's what we're here for. We're aware of how the enemy can bring condemnation, and so that's why we try to keep these corrections in private. I always find it amazing that what, you know, even though we work through the scriptures verse by verse, we often find that what needs to be addressed in the congregation just happens to be the passage that we're on that week. And so the Holy Spirit does his own correcting without having to uh, approach someone personally. And, and who could coordinate that but God? We all are disciplined by the Holy Spirit because we're all God's children. He does most of the correcting that's needed and we're more likely to receive the correction when it comes from the Holy Spirit to us personally. Today's passage addresses the flock in Corinth as the spiritual children of the Apostle Paul. 
He's the one who led them to Christ. He established that church. With a year and a half, he spent there teaching them and preaching to them. And they should have honored Paul for his investment in their lives and held him in esteem in the role that God had given him. But some were apparently downplaying his authority and speaking against him and perhaps against some of the things that he taught. In verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So what Paul had just written was, was some pretty in the previous passage, was some pretty stinging irony of how worldly the Corinthians were behaving. And while professing themselves to be wise, they were acting foolishly. They were acting like the world. While thinking they were so mature, their immaturity was on full display. While the apostles laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel, the Corinthians were trying to fit in with the world. But Paul goes on to explain that this bold spiritual kind of slap in the face that he had just given them is not to shame them. Instead, it's meant to be an admonishment to his spiritual children whom he loves, like a father wanting the best for his children. He's pointing to them, he's pointing them in the right direction. Later in the letter, he will shame them for some behavior that was inexcusable, but at this point, he's just really trying to encourage them as a father. It's one thing to be spiritually immature. It's another to blatantly excuse uh, sin, obviously sinful behavior. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's reminding them of the father fatherly relationship that he has with them. Do you recall who led you to Christ? Think for a second back to the one who shared Christ with you and how you respect and love them for taking the time to do that. In the Greek text, we read that even though they had 10,000 guardians, here in ESV it calls it guides, but the the, literal, the word is literally, uh, it was a position in the, in the culture at the time, kind of like we would look at a nanny who oversaw children, saw to their education, disciplined them if, if necessary. And Paul's comparing the teachers that they have to this household position. But guardian was not the father. The guardian was to see the child became like the father that the child grew up into the father's image. Now that's not always the case today because we're not led to faith by someone who God appointed to be an apostle like the apostle Paul was. But if the person who led you to faith has continued to mature and follow Jesus with their whole heart, then it's just as applicable. With the caveat I'm gonna explain in the next verse, verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. For some reason, um, the ESV leaves off the therefore. Maybe it's the then in the middle of the sentence. But in the Greek, it begins with the word therefore, which is in, in most manuscripts. Because Paul is their spiritual father, therefore, they should imitate him. In the 
pre-industrial era, you know, boys almost always uh, took on the occupation of their father. In the Roman world, the child was to grow up to be like their father in almost every way, to represent the household like he would have. Certainly, Paul's not saying that they were all to be apostles and travel to unreached areas and plant churches, but rather to imitate his zeal for Christ and his reliance upon the power of the cross. He repeats this in the second letter, chapter 11, verse 1. Follow me, he says, as I follow Christ. That's the caveat, as I follow Christ. He had set an example while he was among them of, of living to follow Jesus. But dare we ask the same of others? Let that sink in for a moment. Would you ask people to follow you as you follow Christ? We certainly should live in a way that, that we could ask the same but are there habits in your life that you really wouldn't want them to follow? That tells us that we need to change those habits, that it's time to let those things go and to, to make new habits. I believe we disciple pe people more by our example than even our words. Would you want someone you led to Christ live with you and see your way of life and follow your example? If not, then you need to change some things. I had to deal with this when the Lord told me to take in uh, Mikael. Uh, he was a, a, a Sabra Jew who happened to be living. He had come after his time in the uh, Israeli Defense Force. He'd been traveling the world for three years. He came to Christ in South America, and God sent him to Sedona. He didn't know, even know where the town was. He just heard the Holy Spirit say Sedona. And he came here, and he ended up here at Wayside, and the Holy Spirit just whoosh, told me, you need to take him in your home and disciple him. So Mikhail lived with us for three months, and uh, right now he is an evangelist in Israel. But when he came to live with us, I had to change some things. I knew I couldn't sit there and watch news all evening. That wasn't a good example for him. I knew I needed to read more because I wanted him to read more. You see what I'm saying? We look at who we are and what we're doing and how we're doing it, and we think, what do I want to reproduce in that person? How, how do I want them to follow me? Am I living in such a way that if they imitated my way of life, that they would be a good follower of Jesus? And if there's something that needs to go, then it needs to go. Verse 17, that's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. When Paul couldn't go, he sent Timothy, his, his beloved faithful child in the Lord, to keep the church walking in the ways, the track in which Paul was teaching and his way of life in Christ. So just what, was Paul's example. I mean, maybe we should think about that for a second. We can glean some of it from his letters. Paul obeyed God's call to be a missionary to the Gentiles, so he was obedient to the call of God. 
And though he was steeped in Jewish culture, he, his life was completely transformed. He reasoned with Jews until they would accept or reject the message. And as we saw in the preceding verses, he was willing to be a fool for Christ. Weak, held in disrepute, hungry, poor, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. And when there was no support from the churches, he kept on serving by laboring with his own hands to support his mission. When reviled, he blessed, persecuted, he endured, and when slandered, he entreated. He taught in the demonstration of the power of the Spirit, not relying on man's wisdom or eloquence. He knew the word of God, and he continued studying it all his life. His heart was burdened to see the churches mature, and he exhorted them to hold fast to the word of life. He knew if they didn't, that his efforts were in vain. He kept his body in subjection and ran all out to win the prize. He felt the daily anxiety for the churches, and he did not let affliction stop him, but relied on the grace of God. Foremost in his mind was Jesus crucified. Now, while, while many of those things are unique to his calling, the obedience and passion are for all to follow. How are we doing and following that example? We aren't called to follow his apostolic ministry, but we are called to be dedicated, to be sold out, to be 100% focused on Jesus and our relationship with him. We're called to what is perhaps Paul's defining declaration, for me to live is Christ. And I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're called to live for the glory of God. Paul's way of life was to be dead to self and alive to Christ. There are two stunning elements in this commission in verse 17. First, Paul is not sending Timothy simply to lay out doctrine, but to remind the Corinthians of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus. Biblical Christianity embraces both creed and conduct, both belief and behavior. Sometimes the elementary truths of Scripture are not understood or believed, and it's necessary to go over those basics again. Here, however, Paul gives the impression that the biggest problem with the Corinthians is that they're not living up to what they know. Judging by these first four chapters of his epistle to them, many of the Corinthians were not even making the connections between what they believed and how they should live. They would be the first to insist Jesus died for their sins, he rose again, but they couldn't grasp how this historical reality, this supreme moment in God's redemptive purposes, not only achieved their salvation, but must shape the way that they live. So Paul sends Timothy to remind his readers of his way of life, a way of life that agrees with what he teaches. This is why preachers add application to, to the doctrine that they proclaim. If we just have a head full of lessons without being challenged to live out what we know by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, then we will always be a poor witness of Christian life. 
Already in this sermon, I've given you the application of changing the way that we live so that others might follow your example. Already in this sermon, I've given you application of changing those habits. This is application, and it's essential as doctrine is. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians that Timothy is going to remind them of his way of life. Are we living in pursuit of holiness? Or are we just satisfied that Jesus credited us with his holiness? He credits you with his holiness so that by his life in you, you may live out that holiness. May the Lord help us not be complacent with what has been done for us so that we turn from our pursuit of holiness. Become the example that you can invite others to follow. It's not just routine of, of rising for a time of devotions and prayer in the morning, though that's, that's certainly a place to start. It's living to respond to all of life from the life of Christ in us. Verse 17 also tells us that the teaching was consistent throughout all the churches. They all believe the same teaching. What was revealed to Paul is the same as the apostles' doctrine. Bible-believing churches have the same core beliefs in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If they don't share those core beliefs, they're not a church. They're not the bride of Christ. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I was not coming to you, he writes. Paul is uh, defining the problem for us. There's a segment of the church in Corinth that had become arrogant. They taught something they knew Paul would disapprove of as though he were not coming to them. In other words, they know their teaching is different from what they had received during that year and a half Paul was with them. It's probably something about words of wisdom that Paul was addressing earlier in the letter. It may be their eloquent way of speaking or some insight they claim to have received from the Spirit. Whatever it was, if they knew Paul was coming, they would wait till he left to continue that teaching. That means they know they're contradicting their spiritual father who was appointed by God as an apostle. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. See, Paul knows that the Lord sends us in his time. He agrees with the Apostle James that we can't say exactly what will be on the next day, what it will hold for us. We're dependent on the Lord's will and his direction. But he knows that in God's time, he will go there and he will find out exactly what this arrogant teaching is all about and whether it has the power to transform lives or not. That's the power of the true gospel. When we stray from it, lives change very little. But when the gospel of grace takes hold in the human heart, when we truly realize we're called out of darkness into the light, because Jesus paid our sin debt on the cross, the worst of sinners becomes a saint. There are all kinds of teachings that can change behavior, but only the gospel of Jesus changes the heart from self-seeking to seeking the glory of God. 
That's the power of the gospel. And that's what turned Paul from being a Christian killer to an apostle of Jesus Christ. When Paul arrives, he'll ask them about the lives that they have changed. Paul can point to most of the church in Corinth as the effect of the power of the proclamation of gospel he proclaimed. What can they point to that shows the power that they proclaim? Charisma, eloquence, worldly wisdom do not have the power of the gospel. They might attract followers, but they won't change hearts for the glory of God. You know, periodically we have people come to the church, they see what God's doing here, and in their arrogance, they try to draw people away to follow them. They think they have some superior wisdom or unique insights or revelations and that they're doing a good thing by drawing people away from this biblically grounded fellowship. But I've never seen that result in the power to change lives so that the people glorify God. In fact, division is a work of the flesh. We read in Galatians 5.20. That's what was happening in Corinth, and Paul would have none of it, and he was calling them out. Verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God's not based on rhetoric. It's not about eloquence. It's not about how long you can talk or how much you know or how persuasive your arguments are. The kingdom of God is in power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit to grip hearts and change the way we think and behave. Sometimes it is even manifested in miraculous power. But most of all, it's in the power of the cross to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west and to fill us with the Holy Spirit. It's the power that puts a song in our hearts and helps us joyfully endure the trials of life. Verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? So this was Paul's warning to the arrogant in the church. He left his coming response in their hands. They could repent and back off from their aberrant teaching or they could remain and face public confrontation with the Apostle Paul. I don't think I'd like to do that. <laughs> My guess is that just reading this letter to the congregation ended their efforts to attract followers to themselves. You know, they say that, uh, I think in the second century, it was written that Paul was kind of short and had a big hook nose and, and you know, wasn't uh, uh, certainly not a handsome guy. But man, did he have power when he spoke because the anointing of God was on him. Called by Jesus himself on that road to Damascus, he had power when he spoke. Amen. So they had a choice to humble themselves or to leave. And sadly, it's most often the case that when the arrogant can't have their way or are confronted, they do leave and try to bring as many people with them as they can to justify their departure. The elders will try to help them stay with the flock, but that, but they will not, elders will not compromise the truth. Paul certainly would have preferred to come to them in a spirit of love and gentleness. Like Jesus, shepherds don't want to lose a single sheep, and yet only Jesus can humble the arrogant and help them remain. May we remain faithful to God's word, 
to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Amen? Amen. So as we go through these uh, disciplinary section of 1 Corinthians, it's some hard stuff, but it's necessary stuff. It's things we need to know to keep the fellowship strong, to keep it faithful, to know what to do when, when those kind of situations arise. So uh, bear with the Apostle Paul as we go through this section of Corinthians and, and remember these things so that when they come up, may, if maybe you're a guest with us and you go back to your church and some of these things arise in your fellowship, you can take, um, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 4 and 5, and you know what to do because we have the instruction from the Apostle Paul. We're going to close with this song. Jill, would you lead us? Let's stand and sing it.